0: In three, two... Good evening from New York City. I'm Dan Rydell alongside Casey McCall. Those stories, plus will bring you the madness of March and a May Day from Missouri. We'll show you why Mackenzie Blaine falls mainly on Tulane. And we'll do
1: other things that rhyme as well. All that coming up after this. You're watching Sports Night on CSC, so stick around. We're out. Alongside Steve Samino, I'm Adam Amin, and you're listening to Those Stories Plus, the Sports Night Podcast.
2: This time around, we're going to cover episode 18 of the first season, The Sword of Orion.
1: Hey, buddy! What's going on, man? Hey!
2: Oh, it's been How forever, it things? feels like.
1: Uh, so we took an extended break from recording podcasts, not because we didn't want to record podcasts. We badly wanted to, but Steve was getting towards the end of the year of the school season, and as soon as May rolled around... Man, I was never home. <laughs> like, we uh, we opted not to uh, record over Skype or anything like that just because it'd be in the middle of me flying from Salt Lake City to Cleveland to Boston to Toronto to do the NBA playoffs while doing Major League Baseball, while doing the College Softball World Series. And then uh, we got into June, and I stayed on baseball. And then I went to Italy for a week. You went to Colorado, Colorado for a couple of weeks. For a couple of weeks so uh, we finally were able to mesh <laughs> – our schedules together again. Gloriously, we're back together
2: to record another episode of Those Stories Plus. When we're both in the city at the same time for more than like two hours, we almost ran into each other in Colorado. In Colorado,
1: <laughs> of all places, we were separated by a day. I think
2: you both sent a me a Rockies game. You, you
1: sent me a photo of your seats from the Rockies game.
2: Well, I saw that you had been, you were there calling a game the day before I went to the game. I was like, oh my god, if only I, if I would have known, I would have tried to coordinate, but. Uh, yeah, it's just been a whirlwind of activity, I think. And you know, I'm happy to be back. It's it's been exciting to dive back in and to, to see that some people are still a little anxious and asking if we've given up. We have not given up. No, we're we have not here. given
1: up but with the fact that people cared enough to ask. That's that, that's really that awesome and that's we certainly something. appreciate it. We'll try to make this episode worth your while. Uh, by answering some viewer mail, in fact, at the end of the episode. Oh yeah. So that's exciting. We'll we'll try to answer a couple of emails that you guys were nice enough and, and conscious enough to send. Like these are actually like some good questions in there, and some thoughtful responses, and some dissenting opinion, which we're totally okay with. So we'll uh, we'll do our best to
2: answer those. Without further ado, let's try and dive back in here. Episode eighteen, "The Sword of Orion," uh, originally aired March twenty third, nineteen ninety nine. Written by David Handelman, Mark McKinney, and Aaron Sorkin. Yes. And Mark directed McKinney. by Robert Berlinger, who's back on top of it. So excited to see Mark McKinney. I actually had to pause for a second and be like, wait a second, be Mark
1: McKinney? Be Mark McKinney. Indeed who, it is. Who is not, uh, I mean, well, I guess the, this was his first foray into the Sorkin universe, but he would make several other appearances as part of writing staffs, as part of story editing, and obviously would make some recurring appearances as a guest star
2: on some episodes of Aaron Sorkin shows. One of my favorite additions to Studio 60, when I think you could tell they, they took a hit when it comes to uh, budgetary cast restrictions or something sure. when suddenly there's like oh we have two writers one of them is the original Pam Beasley from the British office <laughs> that's right one of them is the black guy that they draw in or that D.L. Healy's character draws played in, by Columbus Short who is awesome and then they're like oh and Mark McKinney and
1: <laughs> like, Mark McKinney just, by the way just
2: showed up too let's so pull him in.
1: but yeah Mark McKinney is a Canadian comedian and I think I, I first was exposed to him on Saturday Night Live in the mid-90s but he was obviously on Kids in, the Hall Kids in the Hall before he was on Saturday Night Live. You and I, both fans of
2: Kids in the Hall, uh, probably earlier than yes. It's like a nobody school child. Nobody else liked Kids in the Hall. I feel like if I were to watch the episodes that I liked then, now I would probably be like, "Oh my god, I was watching this at like eight years old." What's There's some weird on stuff on
1: there. It's like watching Disney movies with all the sexual innuendo in that <laughs> now
2: taking a look at our other writer here david Handelman. some notes of him only involved in two episodes of sports night but he was either a story editor or a writer for 22 west wing episodes also had some story editor credits on love monkey did you ever watch that show love no monkey? i never watched that tom cavanaugh oh of course ed tom cavanaugh ed ed. himself <laughs> it was his starring vehicle it was only I, they didn't finish it for one season but he was like a record a and r guy who kind of leaves his label and starts his own. If you remember Teddy Geiger, he had that one song probably right when we got into college. I'm going to muster every ounce of confidence. I ah, remember that song. I do, actually, yeah. That's good a, song. Very faintly, yes. He played a, a character named Wayne that was like a singer-songwriter that Tom Kavanaugh's character was chasing after. So Love Monkey, I was so psyched to see Love Monkey credits on, on, <laughs> on David Handelman's repertoire there. Might have been the first time that sentence has ever been uttered. Just saying <laughs> so enough. happy, to see, so happy to see David
1: Handelman. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, jumping into the Sword of Orion, this episode begins with a previously on Sports Night, and both of us had a couple of questions about one of the scenes <laughs> that shows up. Immediate Basically, question. it gets our two main storylines that are going to go through this episode, which is Jeremy's parents are getting divorced, and right. he's left to go kind of deal with that. And Dan is very, very actively chasing Rebecca, who, while seeming to like Dan, isn't really gung-ho for it. But the scene that we get of Jeremy talking to Natalie about like, hey, do you think Dana would mind if I took a couple of days off? I don't recall that ever happened. I don't think it ever showed up in an episode. So it makes total
1: sense to do it as part of the previously on Sports Night because it's very important. Definitely. Hey, my you know my parents are getting a divorce. We know about the divorce because in the previous episode, it's uh, a letter to Louise that Jeremy Goodwin's writing, and he mentions the divorce. We talked about this. It that's seemed abrupt we, even then, it, yeah. It abruptly shows up, oh, by the way, Jeremy's parents are getting divorced. So that's fine. We we know that that's happening. But there was no scene at all in the last few episodes. like that. The, the scene that they used for the
2: previously on Sports Night was never in an episode. I'm wondering if it was a, a little shuffling of storylines because, again, noticeably absent, although not mentioned yet. Robert Guillaume with his stroke, his real, life, his real stroke, life stroke. Yes, wondering whether or not they sort of were going to put that Jeremy in the background. That that thread's going to be there, but then they had to shuffle things around when we don't have Isaac anymore because he's obviously out for some medical leave. So maybe they filmed a scene prior to this and then had to edit things around. But yeah, watching them I'm like, did
0: that happen? Yeah. I know
2: it's been a while since we've recorded an episode, but
1: yeah, I, yeah and, and if and if you you find out that that was in a, in a prior episode, feel free to let us know. But we're pretty sure we we never saw that scene. In any episode, I absolutely agree with you. It has to, not it has to, but I I think it's likely that it had a lot to do with the fact that Robert Guillaume had to step away from the show.
2: Well, as we get the uh, episode running here, opening credits are going. Kim is calling first team to the studio, and we, we get a short walk and talk with Dan and Casey as they make their way. With five minutes to air. They are, as they keep saying, pumped. They are very pumped. We are pumped. Very excited to be going on air. It's, it's nice to see their enthusiasm. It's nice to see these two in good spirits. So I feel like sometimes one's up, one's down. Just seeing them both very, very happy as they are rolling up. And Dan is is asking everybody about whether or not Orlando Rojas pitched. No one seems to know or care.
0: Did Orlando Rojas pitch this afternoon? I do not know. You don't know? I do not. To Natalie. Did Orlando Rojas pitch this afternoon? That's a good question. Thank you very much. Did he pitch this afternoon? I do not know. Thank God none of us work in sports.
1: So clearly, spring training. Obviously, yeah. as you mentioned, the episode aired in March of 1999. So spring Time training, okay. baseball, getting set to go. In real life, Josh Charles, huge Baltimore Orioles fan. Uh, he was actually at a game at Camden Yards that I was calling, and I badly wanted to like tweet <laughs> at him and say, Hey, uh, come to the booth.
2: Come hang out for a little bit. <laughs>
1: uh, did not happen, but... Huge Orioles fan, so he gets
2: to talk about his favorite team here. Orlando Rojas, a fictional player. Not a real player. As we'll get a little bit of info, we might as well get it out of the way now. Uh, Orlando Rojas threw a perfect game some time ago. Now a little bit over the hill. Had uh, shoulder surgery a couple years ago. Dan is anxious to see whether he'll come back because he's very excited. It's There's nothing like seeing somebody who might be out of it not quite be done yet, he says.
1: I'm trying to think of a modern-day parallel. Like Think of a player from like six, seven years ago.
2: It's easier to think of guys from six, seven years ago who've disappeared to me than it is to think of guys who've like stuck it out in adverse uh, situations like that.
1: How about this? Let's I'm, I'm looking at a list right now of Major League Baseball perfect games. All right. So let's say let's go back to like mid-2000s, see if we can find somebody that... All right. That, uh, I mean, here's the, here's the problem with this experiment. David Cohn threw a no-hitter in, or a perfect game in 1999. We didn't have another perfect game until
2: 2004. Then we've had a lot of perfect
1: games. It was Randy Johnson. Didn't have another one until your man Mark Burley in yep. 2009. And we've had like a, a longer string because so, Dallas had A Brayden,
2: stretch of perfect games showing up lately.
1: Roy Halladay, Philip, Philip Umber, Matt Cain. Another white sock you know that what? Yeah.
2: disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah,
1: Felix Hernandez is the last guy to throw a perfect game. It was 2012. There have been a ton of no-hitters, but not perfect games. All right. So let's say like Philip Umber just made a comeback. <laughs> After throwing a perfect game in two thousand twelve, he just case. showed up instead. I can see everyone in
2: the office being like, I don't know if Philip Bumber Hey guys, Philip Bumber's
1: pitching today. How did, did he pitch today? I want to know how Philip
2: Bumber was pitching today. That was one of the bright spots of a pretty disappointing ten year stretch of, <laughs> of White Sox baseball, honestly. But what are you gonna do? Casey is getting psyched. This is one of my favorite moments of this. The fact that he just keeps trying to add more things that he's good at too. <laughs> but Casey is speaking several different languages. We get a little French, we get a little German, we get a little Spanish. And he's just very enthused about this, at which point, somewhere in the middle, Dan goes, All right, now you're just showing
1: up. <laughs> but, I, lo- I love the line where they eventually sit down and he just goes, Yeah, I speak four languages.
2: Speaking speak- to Allison. He's talking to Allison. He's talking to
1: Allison. <laughs> Allison. You speak three languages.
2: <laughs> I dabble I in a dabble little in English. Dabble in a little
1: English is a great line.
2: Is this the first time we see Allison and hear her called Allison? Because it wasn't that long ago we had Janelle Maloney showing up. Right around Christmas. We have I think. seen Allison. We've mentioned her before, sure. but I think this might be the first time she speaks. And someone calls her Allison.
1: I think this might be her first speaking line.
2: She's just a nice background character to keep Yeah, I around. feel
1: like maybe if she has spoken, it was very short-lived.
2: This is definitely the first time she's called Allison. I just control after through my notes several mentions <laughs> of her. Allison's there, no name. Allison's there, and then finally here she is as Allison. So and we get, hey, to her, get to her respond. That's right. Welcome, Allison. Very excited. She'll be around a lot, I feel like.
1: So the 1999 Baltimore Orioles, decent team. <laughs> at least on paper. Not a very good team record-wise. They finished six games under 500. But a uh, little Jeff Conine, little Delano DeShields, Shields, little Cal Ripken at age 38. <laughs> BJ Surhoff, Brady Anderson, our buddy Albert Bell. Hey. He's been referenced on Sports Night before. Harold Baines.
2: A lot of white socks on that team.
1: Aging Will Clark. Huh. A young Jerry Hairston, who I was <laughs> tweeting at and tweeting with the other day. Pitching staff, pretty good. Again, on paper. Scott Erickson, Sydney Ponzone, Sydney Ponson. Mike Musino, Juan Guzman, Jason Johnson, Mike Timlin, your closer.
2: Can we jump back and uh, get a little more light shown on what you were texting and or uh, tweeting with Jerry Hairston about? <laughs> well, Jerry's a
1: broadcaster uh, for various outlets, and he was doing the game that he was doing the night game of a ESPN Radio doubleheader. I was doing the day game in uh-huh. New York. And we were just kind of going back and forth with you know, just the, the four of us who were broadcasting games. We were just kind of joking around.
2: With I was really hoping it was like a restaurant recommendation. No, it wasn't like, hey,
1: hey, J-Hair, where should I go to in Southern Cal? No, it was just, uh, just a very innocuous tweet.
2: Hey, speaking of Southern California, <laughs> very nice segue here. We cut to the control room, and everyone is a little baffled about the relationship of Baja California to Daylight Savings Time everyone in america is on daylight savings time but baja california isn't in america
1: also not technically correct by the way what kim says
2: well yeah because i know like i used to have lauren's family who moved to colorado and that's why i was there we're in indiana and they were not always on daylight savings time for a while
1: so arizona hawaii and at the time that this was recorded most of indiana did not observe the daylight savings time indiana now has i think I don't know if it's the, throughout the entire state. I think but most of the areas, state has adopted daylight savings. Now. I
2: think what I'm also being confused about is that some parts of Indiana are considered the Eastern Time Zone and yes. some are Central, and, and that's, that's still confusing. and that's
1: still the case because where I went to school, I went to Valparaiso. That's part of Northwest, quote unquote, Northwest Indiana, ah. which loves to consider itself as part of Chicago, the land. Chicagoland so area, the Chicagoland area. So just played golf. You were in northwest golf Indiana today, today. <laughs> Central Time. So when you and I were communicating about when we were going to record today. I knew I could trust the time as central time because I knew you're in the Chicago land area. Thank
2: you, Hammond, Indiana.
1: Now, so this is how I've drilled it into my head that Baja California is not in California. It's not Baja comma California. It's Baja California. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, Baja comma. So Baja's the city and California's the like state. Like Chicago, it's, Illinois. Yes, right. it's Baja California. Then you put a comma. So... Officially, Baja California is the free and sovereign state of Baja California. It's the northernmost and westernmost of the 32 federal entities of Mexico. So that's why it's part of Mexico.
2: I didn't realize Mexico had 32, let's call them states.
1: They essentially have states as well. Check that out. This became a state, Baja California, in 1952.
2: I'm learning something every day here.
1: This is new. This is new research for us. Not
2: bad. Not bad at all. In the control room, we get that little hint of laugh track during the Baja Exchange. Very slight.
0: Baja, California is in Mexico. Yeah. What kind of stupid I'm just people? saying, heads up.
2: We get it a couple more times going forward. We are so close to getting it just gone forever.
1: It's not... And again, we've for the most part, we've heard subtle laugh tracks. This was a little more subtle. There is one scene later when Dan is talking to Rebecca's like office mates, coworkers. Right. Where there's like a burst of laugh track for some
0: reason. I don't throw that until your arm is good and warm, Celia. Don't be a hero. I
1: don't <laughs> Comes out of nowhere.
2: It's just strange. And even if they're recording like somebody watching it and being like, add, add some candle after when they laugh, I don't think anyone was laughing that hard at the, no. the two-seam fastball scene, which no, is upcoming two-seam fastball scene. <laughs> Dana is also very, very pumped. She's trying to be contagious. She's trying to get Will to be excited about it. No one really seems as excited as she and the guys are. Uh, we get a little answer about Rojas. He's pitching tomorrow. Great line by Elliot here when, uh, oh yeah, such and such watched him uh, pitch the other day in the bullpen, and Dan asks,
0: Did Orlando Rojas pitch this afternoon? He's pitching tomorrow. Did he pitch in the bullpen yesterday? Yeah, Kelly was there she saw him throw. How does fastball Should be crossing the plate any minute now.
2: I do enjoy that. Getting Letting the little guys have some of the laugh lines is, is really great for me. And we also have another great line between Dan and Casey here when, Dan says, you know what gets me pumped in Casey's response is I know you like grape jelly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's that's such a random like has nothing to do with anything, but it just made me giggle because it was so out of left field.
2: It's just so it's just those little tiny laugh lines that are just we needed them. I feel like we had a couple of really intense episodes. Very intense a handful episodes. ago. yes. A handful of episodes ago. This episode has some heavy moments as well. It's nice to just get some laughs out of the way. It's fun. Nice. In their cold open, in their uh, their introduction to the show, I, I also like that it ends with, you know, they have their normal witty banter and their corn as high as an elephant's eye. Not that that's from this one. But then they end it, Dan says, and other things that rhyme as well.
1: Like, it's a met, that's a meta line. And and that's such an... Uh, that, that was like a very Keith Olbermann, Dan Patrick line to me. Yeah. And obviously that's, you know, going all the way back to when we started the show. Essentially the show was kind of based on those types of personalities, the Dan Patrick's, the Keith Olbermans, the Craig Kilborns of the world that were at SportsCenter at ESPN in the mid-'90s and and, and into the late-'90s. That was a very, like, Keith Olbermann, yeah. we will also do things that rhyme. Sort of a they dry, winking. They kind of look at each other awkwardly, like, quietly, and then just look back and go, SportsCenter's next. Like, it's just <laughs> a very, yeah, dry is the best way to describe it, and I'm a big fan of
2: We go to a commercial, we come back, and the wonderful Rebecca is sitting in the guy's office. Dan is really excited and trying to get her excited about Orlando Rojas. She does not know who he is, does not care about who he is, really doesn't
0: understand the excitement from Dan here. Orlando Rojas. I don't know who that is. Orlando Rojas the pitcher. Orlando Rojas the pitcher? Yes. I don't know who that is. He's pitching this afternoon. Orlando Rojas. Yes. I don't know who that is. That's hard to believe. I took an elevator up 12 floors, Dan. What did you want to tell me? I wanted to tell you that Orlando Rojas is pitching this afternoon. You couldn't tell me that on the phone. You don't like it when I bother you at work. I think it's interesting when
1: you decide to introduce your significant other to your world. You know what I mean? Like, if you come from different... It's one thing if you work at the same place, maybe you you have very common interest or whatever. But if you come from two completely different ends of the spectrum, about whether it's what you do, what you care about, when you introduce, like, a significant other into your... uh, your own little world here. That's that. That's a big step. Definitely,
2: it's a big step. You leave yourself a little vulnerable. Very too, especially vulnerable, especially if yes. you're showing the kind of enthusiasm that Dan is showing, where you might not get the the, the response you're looking for. Yeah. It's kind of like whenever you show somebody uh, like a movie or something you think is hilarious, and they kind of you're you're looking at them the whole time, like huh? right, yeah, right, how hilarious but is this? They don't yeah. get it at all. I feel like you're putting it's a pretty big matzo ball that could be hanging out there <laughs> if you're not if you're not going to strike with them. She seems to have no interest. Again, remember, and we get a little reminder here, she's, she was married to a sportscaster. Yes, caster. she was. She's been in the world of sports. This is part of Dan's confusion. Like, you were married to Steve Sisko for a long time. You don't have any interest in sports at all.
1: That was part of the, the introduction The previously on Sports Night when, when Jeremy and Rebecca are talking. Like, oh, well, I have experience with sportscasters. What's that? I was married to one. And, yeah. like, so right away they want you to remember, hey, remember, married to a sportscaster, <laughs> used to be married to one. Here's why it's a little awkward for her right now to be here.
2: We get our, our little more background about Rebecca. Well, we find out the Steve Sisko marriage was about two and a half years, and it will come out later, but basically he didn't want her to be interested in sports, right? It yeah. was two separate worlds for him, and that's why she's very hesitant to get in there because she knows, remember, she sort of thinks there's this, like, prototypical sportscaster arrogant, all, yes. those, all those adjectives that don't describe Dan, as we heard previously. She thinks, well, I know what it's like. I don't want to be compared to sports, basically.
0: How could you have been married to Steve Cisco all those years and know nothing about sports? It wasn't all those years, Dan. It was two and a half years. Yeah, but they were two and a half Steve Cisco years. That's like 25 regular years. I think Neil Armstrong's wife was an expert in astral propulsion? I think she's heard of the moon. But sports isn't what I do for a living. What do you do for a living? What? What do you do exactly? You know exactly what I do. You're a market analyst. Yes.
2: We get a little more information about Rebecca uh, and her job, which is basically, to us at this point, been known as office worker. We find out she's a market analyst, and as she says, that she analyzes conditions and trends and makes recommendations to protect and improve the company's position in the global financial community. Dan says, "I don't think you know what any of that means."
1: I certainly don't. It's, I, I think that's so. I think it's funny, a real job. Too. I just don't know what
2: it means. It's one of those things where I've wanted uh, a lot of my friends, close friends and family, when they say what they do, I'm like, I want to follow you one day because I have no idea what that means. I
1: don't know what that what those. And it's not because they're not real words. No, they're not. It's not a real description. <laughs> I just. I don't I'm not immersed in that world so I don't know no. I don't know what, what is a trend that's going to help your position on the global economic scale. I don't know what that I don't know what a global economic scale entails. As far
2: as I know her job requires a lot of putting papers in and pulling them out of those <laughs> hanging wall files. That's all we've seen her do. That's
1: all. Not to say she doesn't have a very important job as she'll discuss. She went to the Wharton <laughs> school so clearly she's a very smart individual. It's a probably a very important job with a lot of money at stake. I just don't know what it is.
2: I thought it was funny, too, that Dan, like, laughs at her talking about going to the Wharton School, despite the fact that we've heard him numerous times talk about going to Dartmouth. And he mentions going and to Dartmouth. Goes, <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> mentions it again. But, you know, it's another Ivy League school, right? I looked it up. I wasn't quite positive. But the Wharton School is the business school at University of Pennsylvania. So, hey, Ivy Leaguer, just alongside you there, Dan. What's the problem? What are you worried about? Just, it's one of those, uh, he's throwing stones. Pop calling the kettle black.
1: Yeah, very much so. Say. It is a very uh, common Sorkinism, as we've heard, about kind of mentioning your credentials <laughs> on a pretty consistent basis. I did rewatch A Few Good Men the other day, and they uh, they have the characters played by Tom Cruise and Demi Moore go to uh, dinner at a bar, like they're eating seafood or something, you know, in the midst of prepping for the case that they're defending. Yep. And Tom Cruise, like, just straight up asks, why are you always giving me your resume? <laughs> <laughs> And it was actually a very good scene and, you know, she's like, I want you to think I'm a good lawyer or whatever. Like, it, it's a very well-written scene, right. but it's just funny. That was the basis of this line of thinking for, for Aaron Sorkin and this little trend that we've seen throughout his movies and TV shows.
0: <laughs> Why are you always giving me your resume? I happen to be a graduate of the Wharton School. I'm a graduate of Harvard and Yale. I graduated from a little institution called Dartmouth. I graduated Phi Beta Kappa, Danny, I have a degree from the University of Michigan.
2: I've got a bachelor's degree. In art history. I have actually a master's degree from the University of California at Berkeley. PhD in political economy from Oxford. You have two PhDs. In
0: economics. I have a journalism degree from Northwestern. I have
2: an MD from Harvard. I'm a magna cum laude graduate of Princeton. I was president of Cambridge Union on a Marshall scholarship. And I am never, ever sick at sea. Dan is is pastoring Rebecca. Another little detail. They do a While this whole conversation is happening, a little walk and talk through the set. Behind the scenes, going through everything, it seems like there's a faster way to get to the main elevator of the building than to go through the entire set. I just thought it was... I, I appreciate very much the choreography of those scenes. Every time I see one, and you see people doing things in the background or, like, some an extra passing at the right moment, you had to rehearse that. But at the same time, I'm like, they went from, like, the office to the elevator you don't have to walk through the set to do that do you
1: uh maybe it's a shortcut of some sort but like you do have to appreciate the intricacies and the nuance of what it takes to make a scene like that happen definitely i was listening to uh our our one of our favorite podcasts i was listening to the west wing weekly and they played an interview with john spencer from a decade and a half ago and they asked him about like the opening scene his opening scene of the west wing where he does that long walk and talk in the pilot going through the basically the entire west wing and i think he said it took like 17 or 18 takes to get that down oh man that makes sense because if anything goes wrong in the background you're you could be it could be a 45 second scene and on the 43rd second the extra who is in the last shot trips and bangs his head (laughs) into the wall we got to go back and do the whole forty-five seconds all the over reset again. Reset
2: all the extras, all the set pieces. Yes. The lighting's got to be right. Like that's a very complicated thing. Are you a True Detective fan? Did you watch True Detective? I loved the first season. The first season I did was not great. Watch a second of the second.
1: Not season. a fan of the second season overall. It had its moments, but the first season's great television. Excellent. And the scene there's a there's a six minute tracking shot scene, and it is so intricate, where Matthew McConaughey's character is going into the I think it's like a drug house. Uh, in the project when oh, he's get, undercover and the he's the undercover is with the in. with the biker yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with the biker gang or whatever and they go into this house and is it when he's
2: sh- escaping kind of and when he, all the... yeah when he's escaping
1: yeah. that house and then uh, the scene ends the six minute tracking shot ends with uh Woody Harrelson's character speeding up in a car stopping Matthew McConaughey and the guy that he was beaten up getting into the car and then they finally cut to the back seat and that was a six minute tracking shot with fight like multiple fights Multiple shootings, uh, multiple rooms being uh, broken into, multiple homes being broken into. It's just an incredibly difficult scene. And if you ever have a chance and you've never seen the show, look it up on YouTube. It is so cool to watch tracking shots with no cuts just definitely with everything going on well it's,
2: it it's a trademark of our friend and i'll say it right for your sake not for mine our friend scorsese yes constantly with the long takes of i course. always you always go back to the goodfellas Goodfella copacabana, scene, going into scene. The copacabana of course it's just uh get a
1: room you two yeah <laughs> like it's
2: the if you screw up the any number of, of details holes, have absolutely to go the thoughts and the so even that like that silly little scene they had to be like all right then you're gonna go here you gotta go here there was somebody sitting counting waiting to take their mark and go across and it's just a cool scene.
1: We laugh at walk and talks now because, you know, it's all part of the Sorkin universe or whatever. We kind of giggle about it and people make sketches uh, kind of parodying those things. The classic the, Mad TV. The, the classic Mad TV. Yes, yeah, at the end. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like, Seth Meyers did, like, a Sorkin sketch where they followed him right. around, like, you know, doing a walk and talk. But those are really freaking hard and it's really impressive when you pull those up.
2: It's got to be, I mean, to have that be your thing, too, where it's like, oh, yeah, he does this. Parody or is a sincere form of flattery, well, flattery, right? Yes. Like people appreciate, oh, you do this and you do it well to the point where now we can try and like laugh at it. But you have to be good at it first. Yes. Uh, we end up at the elevators and we get probably one of, at least in my mind, one of Dan's trademark lines here.
0: You built yourself a wall, a wall of pain, a wall whose bricks are made of pain and whose mortar is made of tears and whose. What's the other one? There's bricks and mortar. That's and... it. Really? Just bricks and mortar isn't a third thing nope <laughs> whatever you got a wall i'm going back to my world now i'm going to tear that wall down rebecca bit by a little bit okay bye i'm going to tear it down for i am dan doer of good things where women are concerned
2: and i love him i am dan a doer of good thing where women are concerned <laughs> and rebecca's
1: level of embarrassment when dan just goes what's up like look at everybody in the <laughs> elevator. And Rebecca immediately goes, we're just friends. We're just friends. The level of embarrassment was played very well by Terry
2: Paul. We can call this another Sorkinism as well. And I immediately go to Danny Tripp in Studio 60 where it's this like pursuit of a woman who clearly makes it pretty plain and simple that I do not want to go do whatever it is you're saying you want to do. I don't want to watch this game. I don't want to date you, whatever. But you're just gonna be persistent, and eventually she'll she'll say okay. So like, and, but it's usually after they say like, all right, you know what? I'm not gonna chase you anymore. That's when the, a, a flip, a switch is flipped. Yeah, and, and it's, so this is kind of the first time we see that in a stork universe. And it,
1: it's just funny though with the like the criticism of of the writing style, and we've seen it in different episodes is doesn't matter how awkward, how stalkerish, <laughs> how almost uh, dangerously persistent you are. Eventually, the woman's gonna break down. Like. I feel like that's a total shift now. Like you can't. <laughs> I don't think you could really do that anymore. I don't think you could just be a total, uh, like pusher in terms of how crazily you're going to pursue a woman, without just being looked at and being like, I might have to pursue like legal issues. Right. <laughs> like I might have to pursue a legal route at this point. You're kind of being stalkerish.
2: Persistency only gives you so much.
1: Yeah. It just. It also means <laughs> there's like, a fine oh, line oh between persistence. I and, said and no. Aggressive. I don't want to watch this baseball okay, game. <laughs> yes. Please stop.
2: But you yeah. know. There's a wall and he's gonna break it down.
1: Yeah. And again, I I say this somewhat facetiously. It's not like I'm being persistent to a woman I don't know at a bar. It's being persistent with a woman that you care about or You already have
2: some sort of relationship. But yeah,
1: I would not I would not advise anybody to go to a bar and try to pick up a female. (laughs) Hey, can I buy you a drink? No thanks. Listen, hey, I'm gonna buy you a drink. I'm gonna buy you a drink. Like I would not suggest that at all. That's That's not really cool.
2: That's where we get uh, that's where we cross a line. Yes. We cut to a new scene. We've got Jeremy, three-syllable Jeremy Goodwin, on the phone. He really loves the emphasis. I love when he does that, though. He's on the phone very, very animated, trying to get a chart. We don't know what kind of chart. He's just talking to whoever on the phone wants a chart. Natalie comes in psyched. She hasn't heard from him in a couple of days. Remember, he went back to his parents' house, so he hadn't been around. She got a call from him the first day, but now the second two days, she's a little worried. Obviously, she's not like going crazy because she knows, hey, it's a it's a pretty intense situation. Uh, but she's very excited he's back. He gave her, she gave him a card. She gave him a big box of good and plenty, all this sort it of stuff. It was the big box. He's very distracted, distracted, though. Right? He's very very distracted. He hangs up. He realizes, hey, or he says to her, you know, thank you, but I, I didn't call because it's just one of those things. It was one of those things. And she's kind of like, oh no, I understand. Why didn't you call me? Why? Didn't so again, call the. The persistent, it was, it was, I want an answer. Yeah,
1: it was so out of the ordinary for Jeremy to not call. So far out of the ordinary that this affected Natalie in a way that made her feel like she really needed an answer.
2: And Jeremy seems a little off, right? He does he's, seem He's off, distracted, yes. he's a little skittish, yes. he's all over that phone. It rings again and he's, he's asking somebody. And I really like this bit of writing where we don't quite know what it is he's talking about yet. He wants a chart, he wants to figure out how it happened. We don't get the information necessarily. But it sets you up like, what's he talking about? Just a yeah. little preview for what's going on. Natalie, a little deflated, but obviously, you know, she knows it's not about her. She's being pretty mature about the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, pretty supportive, yeah. And uh, we cut to a new scene, where, which is just the empty conference room with Dan and Casey sitting at the table, waiting, and like, we did have a rundown meeting,
1: right? I need this meeting to start. <laughs> and sure enough, they all start walking. In. Everyone busts in.
2: We get more of Casey talking about how he's well-rounded also. So we know he speaks four languages. He also can juggle. He can play the piano. Later on, he'll say he can cook. Not everything, but he's pretty good at making pasta, spaghetti, and cupcakes is what he mentioned.
1: <laughs> and I thought that's an interesting baseline for you to have if that's all you can cook. Because well, spaghetti, you're spaghetti, I'm assuming you're boiling. But I don't think he's gonna. He's yeah. going to. He's not you know, making pasta fresh. He's going with, to Italy to learn right. how to make pasta. He's I've, not
2: pulling in a Zara. Yeah, he's not. He's not going to Modena
1: or whatever. Like he's he's clearly boiling pasta. Baking cupcakes is not like an easy thing to
2: do. Well, necessarily, it could be coming out of a box. I mean, that's true. Maybe these he's are, talking. These are maybe pretty simple maybe he's going easy it. At least he's not like I make a mean tuna sandwich. I'm pretty good with, I don't know, what's another really easy thing to cook. I'm pretty good with mac and cheese. At least he's.
1: I mean, this is how pathetic of a bachelor I am. I don't <laughs> know how to do anything. I did make kebabs yesterday. Hey, like chicken. I I, I cut vegetables
2: did you soak the kebabs themselves i didn't. did you soak the sticks oh the, the sticks yes yeah. the right. bamboo sticks yeah. we
1: soaked them uh i cut and prepped all the peppers and the onions not bad uh the woman that came by to help make dinner she cooked or the, cut the chicken and seasoned it very nice. nicely and then we, we we put them on the skewers and then we
2: we put them on the grill that's pretty good
1: that was the first time i'd ever i've lived in my apartment building for three and a half years first time i've used the grill there <laughs> first time
2: as, well, it was a good day for it yesterday. For
1: it, <laughs> it, was, it was a day of growth.
2: Pro tip, when it comes to the kebabs, I've given up on making them myself. Hit Mariano's pre-seasoned, <laughs> pre-made, a lot of them are pre-marinated, it's, and then you can take the credit for it. Sure. All right, oh, yeah. yeah, I'll do that. I'm making kebabs. <laughs> Pull a casey. I made this. I didn't really make this. As the meeting starts, Will comes in, tries to sit down in Isaac's chair. This is the only mention of Isaac we get this yes. episode. Basically, Dana says, why are you sitting in Isaac's chair? He says... But Isaac's not here today. She says, that doesn't mean he's sitting in his chair. That's pretty much all we get on the Isaac front.
1: It's the easiest way to just to write it off. It, yeah, right. to, just the easiest way to address it. He, oh, he's not here today.
2: So Will moves out of that seat, and Dana, very excited. She says, I think we can get through this rundown very quickly. Let's focus. Let's dive in. And immediately it gets interrupted Bang, by Dan throwing in his two cents about, like, listen, everybody, I want to uh, watch this game with Rojas with rebecca so i'm gonna need all these little tricks set up i think we can reroute the lc wire i'm gonna need a headphones i'm gonna need uh, some kind of secret code all kinds of little tricks and, and and little efforts to make him not know the score
1: can you reroute the lc wire <laughs> like and again i think we did so we talked about this earlier we're kind of using the a we're if we're assuming that this is the ap wire right which is something that every newsroom has yeah you know, just constantly feeding new stories from around the world around sports around politics whatever if we're assuming that the LC wire is the AP wire, can you really reroute something like that to not Just get American office, League scores? Right. Like, I don't care if it's 1999 or 2016. I don't think you can do
2: that. Also, Dan and Casey share an office. So if he's not getting them, that means Casey's, I mean, it's Casey's not, getting, not
1: getting, them. getting them.
2: And he's got to get them. That one of them dry.
1: has to get the American League scoreboard.
2: He wants to cover one of the monitors with hefty bags. Like, what like do this? you, what do
1: you, this this seems like a lot of effort for not a lot of payoff.
2: This is, he's really trying, despite the fact that Rebecca was like, nope.
1: And isn't Orlando Rojas only going to pitch like 50 pitches in a spring yeah, training game spring if he's training. coming off injury? He, he's going to go
2: maybe an inning and a half, maybe, maybe three innings max, I would say, as a starting pitcher in in spring training after an injury as an older man. I don't think you're going the distance here, Rojas. Uh, yeah, I'm not excited about Philip Humber. He's, How are you <laughs> this excited about Orlando Roas? He's Ro going to get an inning and a third before they bring in some guy you've never heard of. Who's wearing number 87. <laughs> Jeremy then pipes up with his idea. He says, I want to do a feature. Uh, it is coming up on the 10th anniversary of a shipwreck of uh, a ship called the Sword of Orion that happened during the Governor's Cup. Basically, this was a ship that was pretty much supposed to win this race, but it went way off course. Crashed. One guy died. Everyone else was kind of stranded for four days. He says, I I think I can figure out how to to read these charts and tell the story, but I want to figure out what happened to this boat. Everyone's a little bit dumbfounded. Like, this seems like a, this is a race no one's really ever heard of. This doesn't seem like a big story. What? Why? But with a little encouragement uh, from Casey, Dana says, okay, sure. Look into it.
1: Jeremy looks very locked in about this. Almost like, 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 he's not saying anything that doesn't look like Joshua Molina saying. It doesn't look or sound like anything we don't expect to come out of the mouth of a Jeremy Goodwin. But it's just, there's something different about it, and he, it's a very subtle acting job and a very good one by Joshua Molina. He looks like he's kind of locked in. It's almost like rigid in terms of how he's delivering these lines. He just wants to get through it. So I thought it was actually a pretty good moment that was very subtle. I like Casey kind of being the one to chime mm-hmm. in where Dana's a little hesitant. I think that was kind of cool. Like, no, you should do it. Almost like Casey is the only one in the room who understands he gets something it. weird is happening. Casey, maybe. Being somebody who just got divorced within the last year uh, of this show, perhaps he understands what's going on right now.
2: We also get, speaking of Casey, that little, like, oh, I didn't even know you were back. Like, which shows us, again, Jeremy came and immediately dove into this sort of Orion situation. Didn't say hi to his girlfriend. Didn't say hi to his coworkers. Just went right to work and got on the phones.
1: Almost like he was looking for something to distract him. Like, he, he, I think you said it, he's a little off, and it's just because his mind is almost at a different place right now and finding something to latch on to. The sailing vessel, we looked this up, the sailing vessel, the Sword of Orion, was lost in the 1998 Sydney-Hobart race off the coast of Australia during a really devastating storm. Uh, The show obviously used the Sword of Orion, the name of the vessel, but just changed the location to the Atlantic.
2: We go to a commercial. We come back. We're on Rebecca's floor again. They're uh, in the hallway, Rebecca and Dan, and everyone that passes... Knows who Dan is and is pretty psyched to see him. Oh, hey, Dan. Oh, hey, Bobby. Hey, You know, he knows everybody, which really kind of peeves Rebecca a little bit. Like, <laughs> how, does, how are you so popular on this floor? But we get reminded again, Rebecca does not want to watch the game. We get Dan saying again, look, he's been out. No one really cares who wins. It's not even a real game. It's a spring training game. Yeah, he, he had to explain to her the concept of spring training. I like that he says it's what they call an exhibition game, <laughs> as if she couldn't figure out what an exhibition game right. is. Uh, she did graduate from the Wharton School. I'm pretty sure she knows what exhibition is. I don't know.
1: Is there a baseball team at the Wharton School? Probably not. Well, I
2: mean, Penn's got a baseball team, right? So they got yeah, a... but they, yeah, but
1: the Wharton School isn't... It's like... part of University of oh, Pennsylvania. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the Wharton School is the Wharton School of Business. I'm an right. idiot. That is Penn. So yeah, there should be a baseball team. She knows what you an got exhibition got is. There. you got collegiate athletics if you're a Quaker. Come
2: on. <laughs> I made a note of a, a piece of artwork hanging in Rebecca's office. Ooh. I don't know if you've seen this. I'll, I'll pull it up in a second here, but it's like... It seems like a construction worker by a crane. Like, he's wearing a yellow hard hat and everything. Oh, man, I miss this. This is way out of place in, a, in basically an actuary's office. Like, I don't understand what's going on.
1: I wonder if... Uh,
2: it's a quick pan, so I think they were just like, we need to hang a picture up there.
1: <laughs> I wonder if it was... Let's, let's create this backstory, I don't know, out of thin air. Uh, some deal that she analyzed <laughs> got this building built and as a present they (laughs) gave her the print a picture of of the foreman (laughs) foreman. smiling hey rebecca good work what a terrible gift
2: it's it's pretty weird what an awful gift we go to a new scene a quick one uh but a new scene where we're in the editing bay and jeremy is hunched over a ton of papers and charts on the floor it's like uh, maps yeah trying to explain to casey what happened right he gives a little bit more of the background you know they went off track at this point at this time this other ship said they couldn't see them anymore and Casey, he's starting to see through this a little. He kind of just tries to break in, like, hey, man, everything yeah, basically go okay? Yeah, interrupts him, yeah. and
1: is like, hey, how was, uh, how was the trip? Like, he's trying to get him to right. get out of this funk that he's in right he now.
2: Won't get, won't change the focus. He basically says, like, you know, I mean, my parents are getting divorced, so that sucks. But back to the boat, like, he, he won't give off it off. He's very, very focused. And we go to yet another scene. Uh, in the control room, everyone is gathered, basically our tech guys, uh, trying to look at and preview some graphics. And a pretty pretty funny Dana run here. As we know she's very intense and professional, she seems to scare the graphics people. Uh, I'd like to audition these graphics in the thirties and leave time for any
0: changes. Would you put them up, Dave? Yeah, I'll put them up on the monitor, but I think you might want to let us do the talking. Why? You frighten the people in graphics. Oh, I don't. Yes, you do. The people in graphics are my friends. That's not quite right. I'm so nice to them. That's one way of looking at it. What's another way? That oftentimes you express your displeasure with their work in ways that make them want to take their own lives. I absolutely do not. Talk to us. Let us talk to them. I'm perfectly nice. Dana. Watch how nice I can be.
2: Dana. Fine. Show me 30.
0: You'll see how nice I can be. 30's up. But that blows. Yeah, she's not wild about it.
1: That's a great delivery by Dana. <laughs> it is great. That blows. You and I were watching the, the last couple of minutes of this episode together, and just we both kind of we got a good chuckle out of it. It is funny. <laughs>
2: that's, that's good Hoffman right there. That's good Hoffman. Natalie and Dana then leave the... the booth and they start doing a little walk and they start to express their concerns basically why is he so obsessed with this this boat race what's going on and you know why why is he so upset like oh jeremy's father he worships his father he's such a sweet guy he's obviously having a hard time dealing with them being separated so we we know that jeremy really cares about his dad really obviously cares about his parents and he's very upset but natalie is sure he's not telling me something there's some detail something he's leaving out because he's being weird he's being very very
1: off this kind of starts uh, and obviously we're looking at all this in retrospect, but this kind of starts the run of Aaron Sorkin uh, writing about characters or writing to characters that have father issues. And it even goes back, I was, like I said, I was watching A Few Good Men the other day. Tom Cruise's character has a lot of father issues because his dad was a really famous lawyer and won all these impressive cases and Kevin Pollack has that great scene where he goes,
0: One of the best trial lawyers ever. Yes. He was. And if I were Dawson and Downing, I had a choice between you or your father to represent me in this case. I'd choose you any day of the week and twice on Sunday.
1: There's a lot to live up to. And all these characters that Aaron Sorkin writes, whether it's Rob Lowe's character in the West Wing, whether it's Dan here, and we meet Dan's father later in uh, this series in season two. There's father issues there. We're talking about Jeremy now with his father issues. Will McAvoy on the newsroom, major father issues. Jed Bartlett, major father issues on the West Wing. Charlie
2: McCall has a couple of father <laughs> oh issues.
1: Like, it's just throughout his writing. And again, it, it, we can laugh about it being you know a funny trend or whatever, but he writes these characters in ways that we actually care about them. So you know, I can at
2: least appreciate that. That scene ends with a, a funny little thing that's saying, the graphics people are really scared of me. Good. For, yeah, she's very excited yeah, about she it. She likes that. Uh, go to another scene, we're back in Rebecca's office, this time Dan and just some random co-workers of Rebecca, mostly the people he said hi to in the hallway, <laughs> and he's trying to show them how to throw a two-seam fastball, just kind of, you know, make sure your arm's good and warm, you don't want to blow out your elbow. Yeah, don't sure don't be
1: a hero, Celia, and that's when the the big laugh track just booms in, yeah. like a real As laugh As if that's track. the like, line. Whoa, Woo. whoa there, where did that come from? So that was just very odd.
2: Rebecca walks in, and she is just not happy. Not, She's not like, wait, wait, this is my office. That's my chair. Like, what is going on here?
1: And Dan's just playing it off. Like, it's <laughs> like, guys, I think Rebecca wants you to leave. <laughs> like,
2: like, he plays it off so well. And Dan is just really like, you really won't watch this baseball game with me? Like, he doesn't understand why she won't, why it's such a big deal. It's just going to be a little bit. And she just shuts him down. No, I'm not watching the game with you. And you get a little deflated, Dan. Here, he's kind of yeah. bummed out. You
1: know, the, the way he kind of exits the scene, the last two things he says, "It's all right. I'm, I'm, I won't try to convince you. I'm, I'm Dan. <laughs> I'm Dan." Like he's just super quiet. It's really sad. And then he goes, "I'll see you Monday." And it's a really heart wrenching end to a scene like that. And you pointed out when we were watching it rebecca knows oh yeah something she gets she has his face like ah damn
2: it like i i I heard him i didn't mean to do that yeah so clearly she's not doing this because she doesn't like dan she just she's got whatever we we mentioned it before she has that divide that she doesn't want to cross a line even though dan pretty clearly is trying to pull her over that line yeah we go to a new scene and we've got jeremy continuing to just obsess about this sort of orion situation now he's quoting paradise lost he's talking about how orion is like He's there to punish people with the power of the sea, and he's got all this strength going on there. Natalie comes in and gives Casey a five-minute call, even though it's ten minutes before showtime, because right. she wants to, uh, speak to speak to Jeremy. And I really love Casey kind of handling it like, by the way, this is the second time today I've been kicked out of a room, <laughs> and I'm leaving without incident. He's like, it's okay. He's kind of, this isn't a Casey-centric episode, which is, he's playing his part well, which, right. is, which is cool. <laughs> you and I, again, we were
1: watching this together. You immediately pointed out Casey's pants. Oh, dear God.
2: <laughs> Those things are swinging in the wind like a like a bell.
1: They're so wide. They were like, I, I think I made the reference, they were the Jinko jeans of <laughs> 1990s suits.
2: This reminds me, and I, I know we've mentioned this before, but it reminds me of that NBA draft class picture. Yes! Where it's just an the oversized suit. giant suit. It doesn't Gigantic make any sense. suit, yes. Oh, Casey, Casey, Casey. So he leaves without incident, let's make sure we remember, Yep. and uh, Jeremy and Natalie start to get a little deeper into it. Jeremy starts to point out not just Orion the god, or the, the mythical hunter, but also the constellation up in the yes. sky. One of the most easily recognizable constellations, I think, that's up there. We've got, of course, Orion's belt Orion's showing up belt in like, men, the men most in Black, belt yep. is those three stars, pretty straight, very easy to identify. And he says, and it's a pretty poignant moment as he gets into it here, that that's the most recognizable part. And right below that, which is technically his sword in the in, in the, the shape, is not even a star. It's, it's a nebula. It's something that's totally different than what you think it is and how that kind of throws everything off. It's not what you think. And that's where he reveals the big truth. It turns out that his father has been having an affair for 27 years, which is most of Jeremy's life. Yeah. So he's very devastated by this.
1: Yeah, he, as Natalie established earlier, he worships his dad. He's the sweetest guy. You would never expect something like this. You know, divorces happen with even the nicest people, but, like, this, this seems so out of the ordinary, so out of the blue, and you're... I, I didn't think about this. This is essentially Jeremy's entire life. Like, yeah. he's right around 30 years old, a little younger than that even. This is basically his entire lifespan, that his dad has basically been cheating on his mom
2: in some capacity, so... And that his dad is the one who breaks the news, and he, like, and he it, doesn't get did, caught, he doesn't get, Natalie like,
1: says, how did she find out? He told her!
2: Like, that is incredible! Like,
1: really, take a step back and think about that context, that's really tough for somebody to deal with.
2: So this great pink star in the Sword of Orion turns out to be something far more complicated and interesting. You think it's one thing, you look at it, it seems, oh yeah, it's just a star. But then there's so much more going on, just like, oh, it's, it's just my dad, or oh, it's my parents. But there's so much more underneath, and that you can't see just by looking at it until you really look at it and understand it.
1: This felt like a Robert Berlinger-directed episode, I think, as well. Because that particular scene, the way it was shot... Think back to Sally, Smokey, Six Southern Gentlemen of Tennessee. Those are the other episodes that Robert Berlinger directed. And there were more close-ups, there were... There's that great shot when Jeremy and Natalie start talking. When Jer well, when Jeremy really starts talking to Natalie, Natalie's kind of blurred in the background. Jeremy is focused in the foreground. Then we get the shift, you know, just to the right of center. It's just Jeremy, but it's more zoomed in. And you really get to look in his eyes and you see how his hand gestures are so focused and kind of rigid and he's just pointing all these things out. It's really well acted, and I thought it was so beautifully shot for the moment for the poignancy of this moment i thought it was really really good
2: as we look further into it as, as jeremy keeps going to saying this is why he's obsessed with this boat race like it's not just the the symbolism of orion and of the sword and all this but he says i i need to find out i that's i think he, that's what he says is he needs to find out uh, exactly how this boat that was supposed to win was quote met with this kind of disaster like my parents were supposed to be okay. Yes, we're exactly. To be fine. He's clearly talking I need about to know why he, he's this wrong.
1: he's so obviously talking about his parents' marriage. The other line that I pointed out right with you, I don't know how quickly I can get this piece done. And Natalie's like, "No, don't worry about it." It's almost like he's saying, "I don't know how long it's going to take for me to get over this." Right? Like it's like this is his pursuit for whatever reason. This is what he's associated his parents' divorce with. Like this event, this sort of Orion thing. So it's like, I don't know when I can finish this piece. Basically, I don't know when I'm going to be able to get over all of this hurt that I'm dealing with
2: right now. Yeah, and Natalie, very understanding, kind of like, don't worry. Like, don't worry about he, it right now. He even apologizes, like, I'm sorry I didn't call. She's like, hey. Not, you know, and She knows. And, he's, she and knows. I think she's taking his confiding in her as a sign of like, oh, no, we're fine. Like, I'm being a little selfish. Like, I don't need him to be calling me on, yes. every second of the day. He's dealing with some stuff, and he's including me in that and trying to help him through it, so. She kind of takes that as a... She handles it very well as well. I agree. Go to a new scene. We are in the middle of a broadcast, and we've got Dan with his head down, covering his ears as Allison is kind of cleaning up Casey's makeup. We see Connie Morton out in the field, apparently in Fort Lauderdale, covering the Orioles game, and we find out before Dan that Rojas had an auspicious outing, so hey, he did okay. He he seems like he's going to be okay. Sure. So... The great little symbol after all this planning and talking is Casey just finishing a word and pounding his fist on the <laughs> desk for, for Dan to like, look up like, oh, I'm back. Like, I'm listening. I'm back. Here's the he thing, we, it up.
1: we we have signals to each other, like when we want something. Like Casey has that signal to his kid. Yeah. Remember, the, in, like the first episode, when I, I, go, you okay, when I give him a special signal, you got to go to bed. So it's not like you can't do this more subtly. But I think Casey was so annoyed. The face, I, just like oh, he's Jesus. got this, like his eyes are almost rolling into the back of his head when he pounds the desk. <laughs> and Dan, it's not the smoothest maneuver <laughs> where he like takes his hands off his ears and then he's re like it doesn't look good when you're replacing your earpiece on camera like it just looks kind of bad uh for it for tv it just looks right. like you don't know what you're kind of sloppy and disheveled
2: so there were i i like to think there was
1: a way more subtle way of doing I,
2: that. i like i like to think of it as like no one really cared that much about dan at this point they clearly they clearly didn't cover the monitors with hefty bags because he has his eyes closed
1: they didn't like and he's looking down yeah they yeah. didn't
2: mute his his in-ear monitor because he has to take it out like yep. yeah they're just kind of like dan we're doing the show normally dan just, just... Close your it. eyes or whatever. Just get over it, man. And it, and it works. Everything's fine there. So they wrap up. Uh, in the control room, Dana says that she should tell, Gra- or Natalie should tell Graphics to leave the building because <laughs> she's upset with them again. And Natalie does a great little trick with like, hey, Dana says to come up for a well-deserved we'll pat, on pat on the, the back. back.
1: <laughs> and Dana even turns around and give her, gives her like a little smirk. Like she thought that was pretty funny too. As
2: the, as the guys are in- exiting the studio, Elliot hands off a tape to Dan. So he's very excited. I get to go watch Rojas seemingly resigned to the fact that he's watching it alone watching it i'm gonna watch it in the office office.
1: yep casey says he'll stop by
2: but who's in the office waiting rebecca there she is she uh flat out tells him here like listen steve made it very clear he didn't want me to be a part of sports it was a separate thing i appreciate your effort i'm just not used to being a part of it it's difficult for me based on my history
1: and i think dan knew that because he says you know i figured and he didn't seem like he was, like, mopey. And I, granted, it's a very short amount of screen time and a very short amount of time from the time he leaves Rebecca's office, dis- you know, disappointed yeah. to the time where he's on the air. And now he's getting the tape and he seems like he's in a good mood. I think he understood that entire time. All well, right, she, this, this this woman clearly has an, a prior issue. Right. I'm not well, to blame she, she here. She built the wall.
2: He she built the wall. And she, she even addresses it here. She's like, yeah, it's the wall. I, it is a wall. I have a yeah, wall. I have a wall. It's it's the tears and the hurt the and the other thing. Yes, yeah, the, bricks, the the bricks. What did you say earlier? It's like the bricks. The of bricks, tears, the mortar, and and what's the third?
1: It's thing? bricks of pain. Oh, here it is. Bricks of pain, mortar of tears. And so the bricks are made and of pain. The mortar thing? is made There's of tears. No and there is thing. no third thing. It's just bricks and mortar, and right. that's how you build a wall.
2: As they are talking about the wall, Rebecca almost can't contain herself. But she bursts out and says, like. Dan, I I booked a room at the St. Regis Hotel. They've got champagne on ice. Will you please come with me? She's willing to be like, all right, listen, I'm in. Like, it's cool. I'm in. So Rebecca is essentially just jumping all in
1: into this whole thing at that point. Very little hesitation. I basically booked us a hotel room, a really nice one at that for the night.
2: Did you look at the St. Regis? We both looked up the price (laughs) for
1: the St. Regis, New York. We both went to TripAdvisor. If I were to book a room for the St. Regis Hotel just for tonight... Just one night. You and me, Steve. St. Regis <laughs> in New York. One room I could get for $695. Oh man, oh man. And by the way, there's already champagne waiting, which I imagine is probably let's call it another 100 bucks or something. So, I'm looking Re- through Rebecca's, these pictures. Rebecca's this... dropping a pretty petty. This and, hotel and... looks like Versailles. <laughs> and by the way, that's just for a room. That's not for a She says a suite. Oh my God. So that's probably like that's probably four figures we're talking about here, buddy. Well, Rebecca she, makes uh, she is a market I mean, analyst. Re- Rebecca, I guess the market analysts get paid pretty well, oh, and man. they get free photos of uh, of the buildings that they <laughs> that they help get built from the foreman. So I think you're doing pretty well as a market analyst.
2: This is one of my favorite endings of an episode too. So satisfying, Dan right? Dan is glowing like, yes, all right, it's yes. work. You're like it's gonna happen here. Like both physically and otherwise probably so he's like yeah he's just in such a good mood as they're walking out of the office rebecca reminds him take the tape take the tape (laughs) we're gonna watch this game
1: really he was the (laughs) smile on on dan's face in this scene it was so satisfying and this, and, the, and then there come the Beach Boys.
2: Yep. Sloop John B, a, a song about a sailboat, a very unpleasant sailboat ride. <laughs> so that matches as well. But also so uplifting and cheerful. Yeah. And I, even Dan tape in hand as as they are exiting, walking past the uh, control room, we kind of get him saluting with the tape, with the tape saluting tape. Into, into
1: the room. letting everybody know. Like, hey, it's, uh, it's happening. It's happening. I'm out of here. Me and Rebecca are going to enjoy our night together.
2: Jeremy seems to be in there opening up a little bit to, so, to Casey. Natalie and, and Natalie Natalie. So that's a nice little thing, and, and Sloop John B carries us out as we go to play. Come on, Sloop John B.
1: A traditional folk song from the Bahamas, also known as the John B. Sails, which is a line in the song as
2: well. I hoist up the John B. Sales.
1: So it's best known for the Beach Boys adaptation, produced and arranged in 1965 by Brian Wilson, the frontman.
2: If you really listen to the words of that song, it is a major bummer. But it's one of those, like, it sounds so happy... That you're kind of just like, oh, yeah, bobbing the head and singing along. But it is a bit of a bummer. The first mate gets drunk and he breaks into the Drinking captain's Drinking all night, bunk. got
1: into a fight. I feel so broke up. I want to go, go home. home. First mate got drunk, broke in the captain's trunk. The constable had to come and take him away, which basically means he got arrested. Right? The poor cook, he caught the fits and threw away all my grits. Uh. Does that mean he got sick and had to throw away everything he cooked? Is that what it means? And you get the fits. The <laughs> you, fits don't you, sound pleasant. You don't want to risk it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's Sloop that's John B. Really, really nice, uplifting sounding song and a tremendously depressing one at the same time if you read the lyrics.
2: Just a great ending to the episode.
1: It's a really, I, again, I use the word satisfying.
2: So that about does it for the Sword of Orion. A really strong episode. Very. I was hey, happy to be back talking to you about it as well. Absolutely. What so... I've been looking forward to as well. Next time, we're going to be discussing episode 19 of the first season. Eli's coming. I think one of our favorite references with the Three Dog Nights
1: Absolutely. And it's a great song, a haunting, chilling song, which obviously plays a major role in the storyline of the
2: episode. An excellent episode. As Bobby Bernstein is going to return, we'll get a little more info about what's going on with her and Dan's situation. Right. So that's always exciting. And we get to dive in really
1: into what happened to robert guillaume's care uh, we know what happened to robert guillaume now we get to learn what happened to robert
2: guillaume's character on our dvds we've got a commentary with peter krause and robert berlinger so i'm excited to see what they have to say about it i assume they're going to talk quite a bit about guillaume and, and what went down with all that so yeah look forward to that next time
1: we had some viewer mail that has kind of stacked up in our inbox which of course you can always email us as well at those stories pod at gmail.com so feel free to do so as such. And we actually had a young man named Barrett email us back in March. <laughs> so again, sorry it took so long to uh, get to your email, but we've got a couple of them. So we'll start with Barrett's. Hi, Adam and Steve. I want to start by thanking you for the joy your podcast has brought me. Sports Night is one of my all-time favorite shows. Revisiting it through your recaps has been a delight. You've talked before about the difficulty of covering athletes in legal trouble. And I'm wondering what you think about the challenges of talking about an athlete or team objectively as a member of the media instead of subjectively as a fan of sports. There could be conflicts of interest for people in sports media who say cover teams for their alma maters or hometowns. Very fair, fairly common issue that pops up for us uh, on our end of things. I think you as, as uh, as a teacher of writing and as a writer... I feel like you need a, a significant level of objectivity at times to be able to write a story properly, I would think so. And that's certainly the case for us when we're covering games and covering stories in sports.
2: I, I think there's a certain... It's one of those know-your-audience sort of situations. Yeah, definitely. As I am, a, as has been mentioned many, many times on the show, a White Sox fan who have probably the most notorious homer in the world in Hawk Harrelson as an announcer. <laughs> so like when you're watching a Sox game broadcast through the Sox you're expecting to hear someone rooting for them and kind of, like, pulling for them and calling the other side out or calling bad calls or whatever. But if you're watching a national game and you got a Joe Buck situation going on, I'm not expecting him to be like, oh, you know, you know. I'm not expecting Joe Buck on ESPN to be acting like Ken Harrelson would on CSN. Sure. So it's, a, it's an audience thing. And i, I, I got to turn this mostly on you here, where you've certainly called hometown games. Yeah. You've called, called games Cubs of teams games, Bears, yeah, Bulls, of course. How do you handle that? Without, I mean, certainly there's excitement, just the the excitement of being there or being in that position. But let's say you're calling a Cubs game, some magnificent late inning play goes down or, or Chris Bryant ropes one out to get the lead in the bottom of the eighth and there's excitement or something. How do you make sure your excitement stays, I'm excited because this is a baseball play and not I'm excited because it's a Cubs play?
1: You know, I think the conditioning has helped and when i say conditioning i mean i've conditioned myself over the last several years to be less and less of a fan part of it is the process of being in this job it's it takes away from your fandom i think the thing and i've said this before in other interviews and i've talked to people about this i really think the hardest part about becoming a sportscaster and doing it at the level that i get to do it at hardest part is kind of giving away your fandom what's helped for me i'm a i'm a big bulls fan i enjoy the bears i love the cubs but the Cubs won the World Series last year, and for me, that kind of sated any desire I had to really be a fan. Like they've done their job. I suffered for three decades as a Cubs fan. They got me what I wanted—a championship. You know, when you're a Cubs fan, that's part of the the deal. You know, you're the lovable losers, and you're kind of used to losing. So I was born into that, and then as your fandom grows. You understand what your place is in sports, and then when you become a member of the media, you understand what your place is in sports that takes precedence, and that's being a member of the media and being objective. Opening night this year, I did Cubs-Cardinals. I want to say it was Wilson Contreras, I might be wrong on that, but I think it was Wilson Contreras hitting a home run in the eighth inning to take the lead, and I got really excited about the, on the call, because it, it was a huge play. It was the eighth inning, they took the lead. It might have actually even been the top of the ninth but the cardinals came back and Randall Gritchik had a walk-off base hit. I got just as excited if not more so for the Gritchik hit for the team that I don't like, the Cardinals, compared to the Cubs play even though I was I felt a little bit of that, you know, that that excitement and I'm like, "Oh, that's my team," you yeah. know, like it, it was their first game as World Series champions. So, I think just conditioning myself over the course of several games and years doing this job that's helped me kind of keep my objectivity at the forefront.
2: And I have seen and heard you call games teams i've never had any you know like very few people have a very vested interest in you're still just as enthused you've been on numerous you know sports center top 10 your call has been on where you're psyched about whoever it might be yeah it doesn't have to be even anyone that you you're like oh yeah i love them since i was a kid i like the plays i like when something cool happens that's what i get excited
1: about more so than anything else i i still think my my level of fandom is more tied to the job now and the fact that I get to do the job and how cool it is to go get paid to, to just cover and call games, like I get more excited about that than necessarily the teams now. right? You know, For me, the teams are about, well, what city do I get to go to? What ballpark do I get to go to? What manager do we get to talk to that I like or that I have a relationship with? That's exciting. To me.
2: You're doing it the right way, my friend.
1: So we appreciate Barrett checking in and yeah, sending us an email. It was really nice of uh, Barrett to send that.
2: And one last quick one. We just felt we needed to address because we both kind of read this email like, oh, oh boy. Is that yeah, really? I I, oh, no. <laughs> but we, we had got an email a while back from a listener named Sarah who said, Hi, Adam and Steve. I've been really enjoying your Those Stories Plus podcast. I'm a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin shows and rewatching Sports Night for the first time in a long while has been fun. I'm a little behind and just listened to the episode The Quality of Mercy at 29K. I find so much of your commentary insightful and entertaining, but I don't enjoy your Team Dana slash Team Natalie comments. How attractive you find these characters at any given moment is irrelevant to me as a listener. They are smart, capable, brilliant women who are excellent at their jobs. And their personal lives make for some entertaining plot lines. They're attractive characters. But comments that keep track of which one you personally find more attractive at any given moment don't enhance my experience as a viewer or listener at all. Most of your conversation is wonderful, and I'm looking forward to more episodes of your podcast. First of all, thank you, Sarah. Yeah, really appreciate the email. Happy to hear from a listener and happy obviously we certainly have mentioned in the past that we do indeed like the characters of natalie and dana and sally and rebecca really all of them but we absolutely do not want to come across as like sexist pig-headed ac slater kind of folks here
1: and i'd like to think that our conversations are at a level above just that you know when we do discuss the quote-unquote attractiveness of these characters it's not just oh man you know who's hot natalie like it's not. When we, when we discuss attractiveness, I think you and I, I'd like to think, and I certainly feel this way, and hopefully it comes across to more of you than not this way. But the level of attractiveness of these characters impacts our perception of them, and I think it impacts our appreciation of them. It is looking at somebody like a Dana or a Natalie, and I, I, we have discussed how impressive it is that they do the jobs that they do. I think that first and foremost oh, yeah. is the conversation I that you and I have had more often than not. A
2: number of times we have been like, I was, I was loving, you know, I've switched to, as you know, to to quote ourselves and the email team, Dana, because she was so strong in the directoral view or as, you know, as like, Hey, she's in charge, like showing her being a yeah, strong that, woman. Well, we're talking about attractiveness, like, right. we're talking about that. That's an attractive thing to see
0: right. from
1: a person, forget whether it's a male or a female. We've talked about, dan and casey being in their element that's an attractive thing to see from people we just speak from it as frankly heterosexual males that's it's just more natural for us to talk about it that way rather than talk about casey and dan that way but casey and dan are two very attractive characters in that same regard they're confident they're cool they're good at their jobs and dana rebecca to a certain extent natalie that we've seen when she stepped into the realm sally as we discussed a couple of episodes ago they're all attractive characters because of everything about them And the fact that they're powerful and that they have intelligence and that they're strong and capable women, yeah, yeah, they're they're all attractive people. They're actresses. Like, typically you're going to put attractive people on a television show. But I don't think when we mention attractiveness, we're really focusing on their looks. I think it's more so just the appreciation of the characters and how in those episodes that we may have discussed those attributes, how those attributes played out in that episode.
0: And
2: I hope we're coming across at least a little bit like that. We're talking, like you said, about the strength of the character a lot of the time. And that gives credit to the characters themselves and to the actresses portraying those characters to be able to, you know, show off wit or courage under pressure or be able, being able to kind of keep things in control. When it seems like the sky or, in some cases, a frozen turkey are falling down. <laughs> like, I think at the very least, like you said, we're not just like – no one's walking out in a bikini and we're being like, man, did you see – you know, we're, yeah, we're, we're not, talking we're not, about – We're not
1: whooping in the back every right. time one of these attractive female characters walks, on, uh, walks onto
2: the screen. So I hope we don't sound too defensive. We we're more like, no, no, we oh, no, no. Like, is that what we're doing?
1: Yes. And, Sarah, your email is, is totally, uh, like, understandable. Like, it's how Sarah perceived us. Right. It's not that, that that doesn't make her wrong or anything like that, but that's how she perceived our conversation. So
2: we just wanted to take we a just moment. To, to take it. a
1: moment and say that's not right. our intent and that's not our thought process. We'll be a little more
2: conscious of uh, sure, certain, certain. Yeah, we'll try. We'll try to be conscious phrases, of that. I but I, but yeah, at the
1: end yeah. of the day, like that's not how we think. And I'd like to think that the 17 now 18 episodes we've put together in this podcast let you know that we try to think on a plane above what this primal basic idea of attractiveness quote-unquote is in females so we appreciate as we mentioned both barrett and sarah checking in if you want to check in have us answer a question that you might have about this podcast about the show about us anything you can also join in on that conversation you can contact us throughout the internets of course our email address is those stories pod at
2: gmail.com twitter you can follow us at those stories pod also at adamamine and at sjcim speaking of twitter while i am not Let's not say not active. Let's just say (laughs) non-existently active. But we do get a lot of good questions and and follow-ups and comments on there, too. Any way you want to communicate. It's awesome when someone has a question or notices something we didn't notice or asks an opinion about something we didn't touch on. So feel free to hit us anytime on any of those sources there.
1: Feel free to do so. And, of course, you can download and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And we received an interesting email <laughs> and just because the uh, headline of the email from uh, the website that hosts our podcast. I just thought the headline was funny. Followers can now play your podcast with Alexa. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can literally say to Alexa, hey, Alexa, we want to listen to those stories plus. And apparently you can do that if you enable the skill Podbean podcast player. If you search for Podbean in Alexa so you can set that up if you so please what a I don't world know, we live in all, in all honesty I don't know why you would do that I but hope at least one cool.
2: person out there is like oh why would I
1: not do why that why would I I have to do that so if you feel like I just thought the email was funny because of the headline but if you want to do that you can now play our podcast on Alexa
2: so we will see you next time when we discuss the episode Eli's Coming thanks as always for listening for Adam Amin I'm Steve Semino, and you've been listening to those stories plus Got